I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack. And today I am here with a special guest, Lizzie Dastin. Just kidding. Lizzie Dastin's here all the time. She's a fixture on Art Attack because this is what we do. And all we do is we do it for you. And we do it for us because we love talking about art and art history. And we're obsessed and we are deeply in the niche of the art world. And for all of you that enjoy our podcast out there, we're, we're getting a lot of reviews and some of the reviews seem to be fading away because iTunes is just really weird and we don't know what's happening, but please feel free to write us a review on iTunes. Uh, this is a service that we're giving you from the, from the depth of our appreciation and service to you because we are of service to all of you guys. So if you could just exchange some energy by writing a wonderful review, that would be fantastic. So today, Lizzie, we are talking about one of your favorite photographers, Diane Arbus. Deanne Arbus. Deanne. Deanne. Why is it written as Diane? <laughs> well, it's spelled as Diane, but she pronounced it Deanne. So, so. let's say Diane then. Okay, cool. We're no, talking about uh, Diane Arbus. Deanne <laughs> Warwick. I only know Deanne Warwick, Deanne Jello, but I don't know Deanne, <laughs> Diane. Well, okay. soon you will. Okay, but yes, cool. Deanne Arbus yes. is one of my... Favorite photographer, she was a contemporary of Gary Winogrand's, and we already did an episode we on did. him, and so I thought that it would be interesting to talk about her work as they are often exhibited together, and they both represent this new iteration of documentary photography, but instead of photographing the world, presuming that they know it, they're photographing the world, trying to understand it, trying to ask the questions rather than already formulating an answer that's in this neat package for viewer consumption. And I think because of that inquiry, they are much more authentic in the way that they photograph the world, the way that they want to know it, receive it, understand it. And Arbus's photography is particularly interesting to me because of the criticism that often is attached to it. And people think that she's exploitative of her subjects. She is known as the photographer of freaks. And I think that it could be really interesting to talk about some of her iconic images and really tease out those questions. Is she taking advantage of her subjects? And is she photographing freaks? And what does it even mean to be one? Well, let's get a aerial perspective. Let's zoom out and let's look at, you know, it's interesting because she, in many ways, like the artist to lose the track, uh, and you mentioned Gary, uh, but let's, let's go to the, to the artists who really were the people artists, you know, Toulouse Lautrec came from a very aristocratic background, and yet he hung out in brothels at the Moulin Rouge with freaks himself, and really was fascinated by that world because he was an outcast. And and Deanne Arbus also came from a very high society family on the Upper West Side in Central Park West, uh, and her parents owned Russicks which is a huge clothing department store, was a huge clothing department store. So she came from New York City royalty. So it's interesting that she came from such wealth uh, and was pretty much raised by governesses and maids and a father who had a father who was obsessed 
with work. He was a workaholic and a mother who was just not present emotionally and therefore perhaps herself felt excluded and decided to go a completely different direction into art and photography. And I find that very interesting when somebody who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth really doesn't use their family ties to survive and in fact goes into art that a lot of people like oh they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth you know they're privileged blah 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 but the reality is I find it kind of the opposite you know you take a Toulouse-Lautrec or a Diane Arbus and, and you have somebody who had all the potential to really just kind of live on their the money you know in that little trust be a trustafarian and that's a really excellent point and probably one, <laughs> one of the reasons why people think of her as exploitative and taking advantage because of this concept of power. Who has it? And I think when anybody wields the camera, they automatically have a little bit more because they are the person who is creating, constructing the image. And photography is such a an easily manipulated medium that they are the ones who have that power. And we talked about before that people historically didn't want to take have their photos taken because it would take away part of their soul. And so I think that is really speaking to this issue of power, control, agency. And when Arbus is a wealthy woman, didn't the Jewish, uh, didn't the Aborigines think yes. that the Right. I remember that from, uh, not from history, but from Zoolander, when she says, <laughs> Derek Zoolander, how do you feel when someone takes a picture of you the, and the Aborigines feel like it, ta- you know, it steals your soul? And then he says, the Aborigines never... Okay, so anyway, yeah, the, that, was a, that was where I got that piece of information. But I remember that too. Cinematic film history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Arbus, as a woman of economic privilege, does that contribute even more to the power that she already holds? And what she said about that is that she always identified with her subjects. And she was riddled with emotional demons and ended up dying by suicide in 1971, I believe, when she was 48. She died at, yeah, she died because she was uh, addicted. Well, she took barbiturates. She was addicted to barbiturates, but she took barbiturates and she slashed her wrists. Right. And I just wonder does that biography. Is it deleterious to our understanding of her bi- of her work? Because if we know that she died in this way, and if we know that she felt like she had these psychological demons, is that an appropriate lens through viewing her work? Does it humanize it, or does it make it less authentic because now we're muddying the water? So that's an interesting dialectic, well, yeah. too, with her stuff. And I think that we have to... You know, whether you have a brilliant, happy, Claude Monet type of life or a disgruntled Vincent van Gogh type of life, I don't really think that it matters. I mean, the art that you do is the art that you do and you're authentic, you know, because you do that work. And I don't, you know, I, I to me, it's it's more amazing because she left, you know, a daughter on the planet. And that's two, always, two daughters. So I only was aware of one. But that's always weird for me because I'm like having two kids myself. Uh, just a bizarre thing to to take your own life. But you don't know what kind of headspace somebody is in and, and how many demons that she really did have. And once again, you know, there she is. She's from, you know, Fifth Avenue, kind of like the high society, New York City, wealthy world. And yet she's 
riddled with the demons. Yes, and for me personally, that adds so many textural layers to my understanding of her work. And I don't think that she was at all exploiting her subjects. I think that she really sincerely identified with them and always saw herself as an outsider. And just because we see her critically as an insider, since she had all this financial access and she had privilege, she didn't feel that way. She did not self-identify within those terms. And so I think that when she was photographing cross-dressers or uh, people who were in insane asylums or people in nudist colonies or people, uh, twins that she encountered at twin festivals throughout Mm -hmm. the country that we see that as, oh my God, she's pandering to our viewers need to gawk that we are not allowed to look at these people and stare at them if we encounter them on the street. But if we encounter them in an Arbus photograph, we can linger for as long as we want to. Mm. And so I think that's where the exploitation conversation comes in. It's that it panders to this desire to gawk. But I Hmm. don't think that was Arbus's intention. I really think that she identified she was trying to illustrate these marginal communities and give them power and give them agency. And the reason I feel that way is because unlike Winogrand, who would photograph without permission, Arbus, if you look at her work, it's a collaboration between herself and her subjects. Everybody that she photographed agreed to let her take their image. And so it was much more of a conversation and the authorship, there's more of a slippage there because they knew that they were being photographed and so they had more control over their self-presentation. Yeah, and I don't think that, you know, she's stealing the soul of the sitter. I think that she's really fascinated. I mean, I know from personal experience that I am... You know, growing up in New York City, I I don't care if you're from Central Park West, which is obviously, you know, a very wealthy area of New York. You know, I'm from I'm from Broadway, you know, uptown. So I'm from uh, not a wonderful area, but I and but New York is, is close. You know, you're in proximity with everybody just because you're on the you know, on Central Park doesn't mean that you don't have freaks and, and crazy people. And I just think that like in New York City you are among the crazies, you know, whether it's transvestites or or drug addicts or crackheads. And she grew up, you know, during that time where New York City was was pretty wild. I mean, these photographs are taken in 1966, 1970. You had a lot of craziness going on in the city, a lot of just insanity. And I think that... Um, I think you got a colorful car- you know, cast of characters from all walks of life. And so just you're straight legit if you're from New York. And so you have access to these people because they're walking down the street right next to you. And for me, she really feels like she takes an interest and a fascination with them. And I, I myself who paint the underworld and the people in the, the pool halls and, you know, the tr- cross-dressers and the you know, pimps and hustlers. That's kind of my world. And and I really feel like she captures those people who are outsiders too. And she has, she, it feels like she has an authentic uh, connection to them. And that's what I experience. And this is so subjective, right? Because who cares what anybody thinks? At the end of the day, I don't really care what anybody says about my work. And, and 
neither should she about her work. And I know she's had vast criticism and, you know, also an incredible amount of love and adoration of her photography. And that's good because it seems to be polarizing one way or the other. Which is my favorite kind of art to talk about because then we can really sink into the meat of that criticism and where it's coming from and whether we agree. And my perspective is similar to yours. I think that since all of her subjects pose and all of her subjects are aware of her presence as a voyeur, as a photographer, that she is not taking advantage of them. It really is a split authorship between them and between the gaze of her camera. And the one thing that I I thought you were thinking of the the homosexuals of her camera, the way that you said the gaze of her camera. (laughs) Well, that's true. She did... G-A-Z-E, guys, not (laughs) G-A-Y-S. And the only thing I'd like to problematize is your use of the word crazy, because I think that gets back to the criticism that these people are freaks. And I think for Arbus, she was just trying to redefine what it is Mm -hmm. to be a person worthy of having your portrait taken. And she's trying to normalize people who are otherwise seen as invisible. I understand that. And um, objection overruled because I would say (laughs) that I was, no, I'm kidding. I would, but I, I think that you, you, there is a certain insanity. I mean, to, to the, to the energy and the, and the chaos of the city. So I meant crazy in that way. And, and we're all kind of affected in New York city when we're grown up, when we grow up in this world, right? There's no boundaries like we have in California where you could be in your little bubble. You take your bubble car to your bubble restaurant, to your bubble dinner, to your bubble movie theater. But in New York, we're all Sam, we're, we're out there. You know what I mean? We're, we're in the subway, we're on the bus, you know, on the, taking the 104 to the one train. And then we walk out into a crowd of craziness. So there's a chaos there that I mean with crazy. And she really does focus on these uh, on these characters who are who are intriguing, no matter what. Every one of her subjects are very interesting, and you want to look at it. You want to kind of go, "Oh my God!" Like when you look at that pa- the the painting. I'm saying <laughs> when you look at the photograph of in 1970 of a Jewish giant at home. It's so weird, right? It's like the parents are looking up, gazing up at this, I guess, Jewish dude because it says Jewish giant. Uh, who was looking down at what I'm assuming are his parents. And he looks like he must be like eight foot seven and they're like five foot two. And it's such a weird, awkward, like how did, how did this happen on so many levels? Like, did this Jewish giant come from the loins of her vagina? Like that's my first thought is like, cause I'm thinking about the size of that baby and having to go through the pelvis. It's just crazy. Or, or like, well, can I just say about that yes. work? Do you know about on? that work? I do, of okay, course. Okay, cool. Of course, of course she does. <laughs> well, this is one of her more iconic images. And Arbus said of this work that every mother at some point in her her life, if that she will look at her child and think, are you a monster? Did I raise an insane person? Or are you, I don't know if, if you have this experience as a mm-hmm. father, but that's what she said. And she said of this image that she feels like she captured that moment, that mm. glimmer where the mother is looking up at her son, wondering, is this person a monster? And I disagree with that. Frankly, I see a lot of domestic warmth when I look at this image. And what I like about it is that she's not just photographing this discrepancy between the smallness of the parents and the bigness of the child, but she's really photographing environmentally. We see the bric-a-brac in the house. 
and it is very much of its time. And I see so much as just a lot of pleasant dynamics. And I, I really find this work very heartening. And I think it has the freak status just because he is so tall. And we only know that he's so tall because he's photographed juxtaposed to his small parents or his traditionally sized parents. And also his head is just right about to hit the ceiling. Yeah, he so, seems to be crouching down yeah, exactly. to, even, to even live in that confined space. It sure. feels like a coffin to him and, a, and, an apart, and an apartment to them. But what's interesting is that if she had chosen to photograph him outside, we wouldn't get this sense right. of the walls suffocating him or confining him in the way that they do. And so she is trying to emphasize his height. And so maybe that's why it slips back and forth between being an emotional journey of trying to understand and then also being an integer of maybe judging or exploiting. And, and she does it very intelligently because she's doing it as a vantage point where you see the two tops of the ceiling walls coming together. So it feels even more claustrophobic as the corners of the wall perspect towards where his head is. So it feels like he's in a, he's in, in like a dollhouse in a box. Yes. Oh, that is such a cool way of describing it. It does seem like he's an Alice in Wonderland figure where mm -hmm. he just drank the, the drink me and now all of a sudden he's growing. So another iconic image of hers that was... Some pills make you taller. Sorry. It's was... not Stephen Sondheim. I don't understand the reference. Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Manny, you know Jefferson Airplane, <laughs> that song, right? Okay. That was a, in reference to Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Lewis, cool. Lewis Carroll. Go ahead. Go. So moving on to her photograph of identical twins. And this is such an iconic image, totally part of the zeitgeist, and was so influential to Stanley Kubrick when he saw it that he ended up creating the twin characters in The Shining. Red Room. Little Red fun room. fact, yeah. Red Room. Yep. Red Rum. Red Rum. Yeah, got it. Small Room got it. <laughs> for the got Jewish it. giant. Got it. <laughs> Red Rum for Kubrick. So Which anyway. is really weird. Yeah, no, I could see that. In fact, I was thinking, even when I was going through her work, I feel like, directors like David Lynch, when you look at like Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, I feel like directors who really pull freaks into their work or even photographers like Joel Peter Witkin who pull freaks into their work, I feel like they've had to be influenced by her. Oh, There's yeah. no way that they weren't looking. You're telling me Kubrick, Kubrick does reference that, right? That yes. he was influenced by Diane Arbus. He does. There's He's no explicit. way that David Lynch and all these other directors who are obsessed with this genre, um, the weird and the wonderful, were not influenced by her. So she was influential, interestingly enough, beyond photography into, the, into movement, into film. Yeah, absolutely. And even though she's photographing niche communities, she is being illustrated in Harper's Bazaar. And yep. every, she was a part of the mainstream. So she really does bridge the gap between the margins and the mainstream. And for the identical twins, she would go to conventions, twins and triplets conventions. And she found God. these two little girls who are dressed in an identical manner. They are identical twins. And she asked and she received permission from their parents to photograph them. And there's just something kind of creepy and haunting about identical twins mm -hmm. because it's like the doubling effect. And that goes back to surrealist strategies of of destabilizing something by showing it as a double. And she's relying on all of that. And the kids, they just sort of look vacant. One of them seems a little bit more inward and the other is a little bit more of an extrovert with this 
smile that seems to creep on her face. And somebody, and I love that somebody did this, ended up tracking down many of the subjects of Arbus's most iconic work and asked these, these women, at this point they were adults, what they thought about the photograph. And they shared the anecdote that their parents thought that it was terrible, mm. that they didn't look like that, and it made them look like these automatons and strange and a little bit sinister, of course, picking up on what Kubrick picked up on as well. But that with distance and time, the girls actually see this as being the most truthful photograph ever taken of them. That one of them, the one on the left, is more reserved and introspective and more just quieter. And then the other one was a little bit more forthcoming. And so Arbus was able, even though she didn't know them, to really capture the sincerity of their personality. So I think that's interesting. And it was also uh, the person, the this photograph that is perhaps her most iconic of all, it's called Child with a Toy Hand Grenade. And a similar situation happened with that. So the photograph is fantastic. It's my favorite one that she's ever done. I think that might be in Central Park. Oh, it is. Okay. So it's a little boy. He has suspenders on, and he's holding a toy grenade. He's outside in Central Park, and we see this moment where he is just gripping the grenade, and his hands are contorted and look like claws. And he's just staring at the photographer with this really menacing, odd facial expression. And it's creepy. And his little skinny legs and echo. And the suspender falling yeah, off. Yeah, the suspender's falling really off. Weird. He looks deranged. And his little skinny legs echo the forms of the trees in the background. And the dappled lighting seems to reflect the pattern of a shirt. There's a lot going on in this photograph. And... What's fascinating about it is seeing the contact sheet. And what a contact sheet, it's basically just all of the images that a photographer will take on a roll laid out. And when you look at the contact sheet, you can see the little boy was laughing, he was smiling, he was peacocking. And then all of a sudden, as the legend goes, he was getting frustrated that Arbus wasn't taking or wasn't finished with the photo shoot. And so he just said, take the photo already. And that's when he contorted his hands into these claws. And of course, that's the image that she ends up using because it emphasizes the weird, the subtle aggression of childhood. And he was actually mocked mercilessly for this image. And people would, I mentioned it was printed in magazines, so his classmates would print it out, stick it in his locker, tease him mm. about it. And as an adult, because he hated it at the time, but as an adult, he said, you know what? The, uh, the aggression that you see was really my truth because his parents had just gotten a divorce mm. and he was going through a lot and just trying to figure out how to maneuver through the world with this split home. And so he said that seeing this, he really feels like the authenticity of what he was going through at the time was photographed for the first time. And so Arbus, once again, was able to capture that. And he said this from jail. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he does look like he could be a predator. Yeah, and I was going to say also that the twins also, the, you know, I mean, come on, he, she was able to capture this kind of weird Victorian era looking outfits and their sullen nature. And remember, she's photographing in black and white, so there's an emotional quality that black and white has that color doesn't have because we're seeing things in stark chiaroscuro 
And I feel like with that, uh, you're able to pull out a little bit of a heavier, deep, critical, artistic vision. And you're taking the color out. At the end of the day, you're looking at the world through black and white. And that's really interesting, too. And that's the way that she chose to photograph the world, which is a lot more stark and a lot more intensely emotional. And majestic. She is really elevating the people that she photographs to a mythic status. I think if she were to photograph them in color, Mm -hmm. it might just seem more everyday. Mm -hmm. But she is putting them in a different sort of sphere, which I think was entirely intentional. And she did another photograph that I wanted to talk about because the story is so cool, is that she was hired by one of the magazines to do a spread on babies. Mm -hmm. And she photographed babies crying very, very close up, and it's just the underbelly of childhood where the child is out of control and chaotic and snotty and tearful. And she photographed this one baby of a very from a very wealthy New York family, the Vanderbilts, and the child is so pale, and the child is sleeping and is against this white background, and it really looks like a death mask. Well, it looks like a midget, too. It doesn't look like a child. It looks like a full-grown adult midget gangster who just kind of got his you know, photo taken in, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, like a mug shot. Like a really, it looks like a weird... Just that's weird, but you know, babies look like that. Yeah, babies are kind of odd. I looking, mean, they're but, odd. <laughs> but this one to me looks like a, a death mask. And actually, there is a history of or history with that intersection between death and photography, and how when photography was first popularized as a medium, people who lost their family members would take the bodies to photograph studios so that that image could be rendered and so this person who was a lost family member could be memorialized so this work anyway when she showed it to the baby's mom the baby's mom was like no no you cannot publish this my Mm. child looks dead or it's just not a very flattering image and the baby is anderson cooper oh my god that's crazy (laughs) i know wow that makes so much sense no kidding it doesn't make any sense at all (laughs) anderson cooper one of the most charismatic uh uh, extrovert personalities of our time. And he loves this image. He has no, it's great. A, a print of it in his bedroom. And then the other baby over there in 67 is just a child crying. And that looks like every kid in the world because every <laughs> right. kid cries. Okay, guys, so listen. Diane Arbus. Deanne. Oh, God, I just don't want to say it. Deanne Arbus, <laughs> uh, wonderful photographer, very emotional, really captures the essence of the sitter. And I think that's what we've distilled through all of this is that very rarely do we see artists capture the essence. We see it in Rembrandt's portraiture, we see it in Diane Arbus's photography, and it is a very difficult, powerful, and as you say, Lizzie, majestic thing to do. Diane Arbus, if you don't know her, now you know. Check her out. Peace. <laughs>